Big thanks to our title sponsor, Blooming Smiles Pediatric Dentistry. Dr. Arpita Patel has a beautiful, modern, and upscale pediatric dental office in Charlotte, North Carolina. She and her experienced staff treat children of all ages and special needs patients. They create a comfortable, stress-free, and memorable dental experience for both the child and parent, starting with earning your child's trust and always catering to their individual needs. They're proud to offer the Waterlays Plus laser system they call Princess Poppy. It's an alternative method, which means no injections, shots, or drills. They genuinely share kindness, patience, compassion, and fun. Who you calling crazy? Welcome to Who You Calling Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma and elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Kuhnley. Juliette, I um, so appreciated that you reached out. One of the things I love about Instagram is it makes us all accessible to each other. Mm-hmm. With- the typical barriers that are in place in society. So when somebody messages me and, or DMs me and um, asks me like, Hey, will you be on my podcast? I'm just delighted that we've connected. And um, I feel that my work gets to grow because you're interested in it and you want to bring me to your community. And there's trust embedded in that, which Mm -hmm. I love And so this is precisely where I want to be with you and your community. That is beautiful. And that's why I just, you're my people, even though you didn't know it, because I'm just like, (laughs) I know, you know, authenticity is drawn to authenticity too, right? That's, that's part of it. And I think the mission that um, I try to have as well, I know is, is aligned with your mission. So as much as I like, um, you know, want, want all of your expertise and wisdom, I just really want you during this podcast. (laughs) Like, I think that's why I said yes, because I mean, I would have, I might've said yes, if you were, I'm a parenting (laughs) expert and I want to talk to you about parenting, but there was something about the opportunity to be with you in this space around mental health, Mm. around me and my mental health. I think I felt the pull Mm. toward you as in I think I could use that. Mm. Like she thinks I'm going to be of service to her community, which is great. I hope I can, but oh, hey, I could really use this conversation myself. So it gets very meta very quickly. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And in your writing, I mean, you're, you're again, someone who you share stories, you know, so I, I feel like I know little pieces of, of you and your story. (laughs) Yeah. That's what you get when you're a memoirist. All of a sudden people like, Oh, I remember when you said, I'm like, what did I say that? Oh yeah. yeah, I put in a book. (laughs) Yes. You let all of the people in, (laughs) but that again, that's the, the authenticity that, that so many people love and crave. So just when I ask you, well, first of all, just give us a little, um, a little intro. I didn't, we didn't even start like, who are you? And just the, the brief, brief elevator bio that you give people. Well, anyone who knows me well knows I'm not brief, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I yeah. tend to like to give the backstory to the backstory and then tell you the story. I'm here I'm, for it. No, no, no. Okay. So I'm a 53 year old black biracial, uh, queer bisexual woman married to cis woman married to a uh, white Jewish cis male bisexual man. <laughs> okay. Woo! Yes. Like and intersections we, upon layers and upon layers. Dan and I've been together since he was 19 and I was 20. So we are heading into 33 years of committed, cooperative amazingness. Oh. And Um, So that's one piece of me. Another important piece of me is I am the child of an African-American father and a white British mother Mm. who were falling for one another in an era when to do so was transgressive. Yes. And so to marry was to violate law. To dare to produce a child was to violate societal norms. I am that child. Mm. I have lived outside society's boxes since I got here. I have had messages from society, from neighbors, from classmates, from teachers, from strangers that something about you is problematic. Um, so I am somebody who, despite being quite privileged, I'm highly educated. My parents were highly educated. My, my parents raised me middle-class to upper middle-class. So I have had a pretty privileged life and 
Mm-hmm. I have also learned, uh, I did learn early on that something was wrong with me based on my skin color, based on my presentation. And um, that I think is the locus of my compassion for humans. I have been marginalized. I have been mistreated. I have been the recipient of racism. I have dealt with innumerable microaggressions. And that has given me, I think, when I search for why do I feel this drumbeat to try to serve humans? And I'm interested in what's my why around that? Did I come into the world being that way? Or did I learn some things that made me want to be that way? I, the farthest back I can trace my why is to being a three and four year old discovering, you know, meanness, yes. being mistreated because of how I looked. And I think that gives me a lot of compassion for anyone. I mean, most of us, for some reason or another, have been under the scrutiny of others because of what we look like, our gender, our sexual orientation, our skin, our religion, our are, are, et cetera, et cetera. The ways we learn, the ways we talk, the ways we present, like all of our differences. And um, so I'm just really, I just feel I'm rooting for all of us, Juliet. That's what I like to say. That's what my bio says. Julie got Hames roots for humans. And I'm just trying to tell you why I think that is. Mm. Yes, because that is all so foundational. That is your experience. Yeah. And you've talked about that too in your, in your bio of just like this being othered from the outset. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. And so the more technical side of who I am is I used to be a lawyer. I used to be a university dean and now I'm an author and speaker full time. And I've written three books, um, uh, all nonfiction, all trying to help remove the obstacles from the path of humans. Mm. So I think broadly, I'm, a, I'm writing in the realm of human development, even though I do not have a degree in human development. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend a lot of time observing, listening, feeling the feelings of the people around me. I'm an empath. Mm. Um, I, I, um, so that is my work. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help, you know, I'm trying to help us make it. And I'm one of those people who believes that we don't make it unless we all make it. That's right. You know, and it's impossible for any individual to change the world. It's impossible for any one of us to help all of us, but I am trying to do my small part to help some of us. Sure. So removing roadblocks for humans and you have your own two humans too, and two children that you've been trying to do that for as well, but not too much. Don't shoot. Yeah. Not too much roadblock removal. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So I wrote a book on the harm of overparenting yep. and then discovered to my horror that I was doing the very things that I found problematic. And mm. as I watched it happening to the college students for whom I was the Dean, then I dialed, I come to my own house. My kids are eight and 10 and I realized I am overparenting my kids in such a way that I'll be doing the same thing that I'm criticizing um, at the later stage, the college stage. Mm. So I have a, and you talked about it. I bring this sort of, I tell my own stories on the page. I try to be authentic. I try to be vulnerable. I try to tell the truth of the human experience to the extent that I can bear it. Mm. So I'm not telling all my truths on the page. There are boundaries. There are ways in which I say, you know what? Nope, that's private. I'm not going to share it. There are lessons there, but I'm not ready to share them because I'm not ready to be known around that. Maybe one day, who knows? Um, But I am trying to be humble about the extent to which I am experiencing the very things I'm trying to give other people advice about. And frankly, I think that's what makes the advice feel good. People, I may tell a very difficult tale about what you really must not do with your kid by way of micromanaging their lives, but I'm going to tell it through my own having done it. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel judged, you feel seen. And we get to why are we doing this instead of what's wrong with you. That's right. Um, So yeah, my two are 21 and 19 and I'm actively working on some repatterning, I call it, um, Mm. with both of my kids around some of the ways in which, um, you know, the sort of family norms and the ways we talked and the ways we handled things that I can see now were encroaching into their agency or into preventing them from developing resilience over helping, trying to make everything, you know, there's a whole lot there, but I'm, I'm actively involved in repatterning with my kids so that I can be the grown up older person alongside them in life not dragging them, not pushing them, not handling it all and carrying them on my shoulder and um, showing up for them in the ways they need and deserve. Mm. 
So again, you identify early memories from age three of being aware of being othered for lack of a better term. Um, So when you just, you think about your journey in mental health. So I sit here, you know, in my privilege as a white woman and just, um, and, and cis and um, you know, I don't have all of these, like we said, all these intersections and all these layers. Um, But I know that that plays into the mental health journey for sure. So just how, what would you, how would you share um, kind of what has come up for you as far as mental health around all of this all along the way? Um, Where do we start? uh, Well, what I say in my new book, which is your turn, how to be an adult. It's this very compassionate companion to young adults who are like, I don't want to adult. Adulting is scary. You know, I can't adult. It's me on the page saying, I am rooting for you. I know this is hard. Tell me, tell me. Yes, yes. And you gotta. Mm -hmm. So I'm here because I want to show you some things. You know, like I'm older. I'm going to shine a light to illuminate things. Warm illumination Mm -hmm. for you so you're less afraid and you feel less alone. That's the tone I try to take in this book. And um, I say in this book, in one of the chapters is called take good care Mm -hmm. of yourself. And it's not just about mental health. It's about the, the self in its entirety, your diagnoses, your conditions, your situations, your differences, your your identities, all of it is in that chapter. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately trying to say when you belong to yourself, you belong Mm -hmm. everywhere. You know who you are when you belong to yourself. uh, That's one of my mantras. And so I'm trying to incentivize or encourage or nudge people toward know your situation. I use the term situation for everything from disease to diagnosis, to disability, to despair, to, to identity, like your situation is unique to you. Know it continually be curious about it. Anyway, in that section, in that chapter, many chapters have very practical tips and that chapter certainly does. And Mm -hmm. one of them is around processing your feelings. And I say, see, I told you, I like to tell the backstory to the backstory. (laughs) The answer to your question is I admit on the pages, page of this book, I think I say something like I was raised by people who don't believe in feelings. Mm. Oh, Lord, Juliet, when my 82-year-old mother Mm. read that chapter, she (gasps) really having a hard time with it. Mm. And I say, and I held, you know, I had, again, boundaries and intentions. I knew in writing that and rewriting it and writing it again, that someday my family would read this and what were they going to think? And yet I knew this is my truth. And I'm trying to say it in a way that isn't judgmental. It was a little tongue in cheek. My family didn't believe in feelings. Of course they believed in feelings, but I, I go on to say, I was raised by a stiff upper lip British mother and her people, the British are known for that. Right. And, you know, friends of mine who are Asian are like, Oh yeah, we're not allowed to have, you know, we don't have, we don't talk about feelings, right. There are all kinds of people who uh, wasps in, you know, waspy people in new England, right. No feelings. Right. It's all Mm -hmm. different cultures have survived because of that, or that's that's right. Mechanism at least. That's right. And so I, however, (laughs) have been trying to undo that. So I was raised by people who did not quote, believe in therapy raised by people who thought if you were in therapy, something was wrong with you, like Mm -hmm. wrong. wrong. Right. So I didn't have my first therapeutic experience until I was in my late twenties. I had experienced a series of, um, very challenging things, including surviving not I shouldn't put it that way. I was in an earthquake that terrified me. I thought I might die. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, my father got a cancer diagnosis. I began law school. I got married. My brother died suddenly. And then my father died. And after that all happened in the span of about five years, six mm-hmm. years. And I didn't unpack any of it as it was happening. And then finally couldn't concentrate, couldn't focus. I'm a lawyer. I can't get anything done. And I go to grief counseling at the encouragement of a different, of an extended family member where I begin to listen to the grief of others to discover, oh, hey, 
I haven't lost my mind. Mm. I'm grieving. The fact that I can't focus is not a, you know, I didn't have a stroke. I'm grieving. And I learned that what I was going through was a process, that it is normal, that it is lonely, and that we can feel less alone when we are in the presence of those who get it. That's right. that language. So grief counseling was my first experience with counseling. Yes. And with a group. So a group. Exactly. That is so powerful to hear others. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was a huge, that was the beginning of my counseling journey that said, okay, so that was the beginning of my counseling journey. And then I've had personal counseling. I've had in uh, therapy, couples therapy and family therapy. So I have been a partaker of all different kinds and I'm firm believer in it. In finding the right person, I, you know, I also say in the book when when Dan and I were going to couples therapy, there was a day when it was the day Michael Brown had been killed in mm-hmm. Ferguson, and I had gotten the news right before therapy. I'm like consuming the news, and and I show up, and I'm a, I might be ten minutes late, so I burst in and I just announced to Dan and our therapist, they just killed another unarmed black kid. You know, and Dan, my white Jewish husband, looks at me with so much compassion. And the therapist looks at me like, what is wrong with you? Or, <gasps> you know, it was horrible. He oh. didn't say that, but there was nothing like, nope. you know, do you want to talk about that? This must be hard. Like there was nothing. And I should have, you know, kicked Walked him to away. the curb, Yeah, then it took me three months to do that. So finding a oh. person who can... Be empathetic, you know, can is of your situation or compassionate enough that they will take an interest in whatever is going on for you rather than where you are and just meet you where you are. That's a lovely way to put it. Yeah. So I've had good experiences and I've had bad experiences. And I think I am an informal counselor. I have degrees in law. A law, (laughs) a lawyer is somebody who listens and and cares and advocates. And it's a different type of counseling. I've been that friend who was trusted in early childhood with the feelings and problems of others, which is, I think, why I found my way into law and into being a a university administrator. And so I do not have the training, um, but I have, I think, some intuition around how to be so that others can feel that mirror that yeah. I'm just here to hold a mirror for you so that you can see yourself more clearly in my mm-hmm. presence. And I think that's apparent. I think that especially as a memoirist, like you don't, you have to bring vulnerability to that. So that becomes that intuition that you're describing, that kind of it thing is apparent yeah. in your writing. So, yes. So I know that you, um, you know, you talked about not being raised in a feelings household Um how how were you parented you know when because that is so much of your your work <laughs> checklist childhood or or whatever you know yeah. or, or not but yeah how would you, what comes to mind when i ask that how were you parented so remember i'm 53 so i'm gen x and which okay. means my mother was part of the generation of women who quote unquote went back to work um in record numbers and we were the kids who were home alone uh we came home from elementary school, let ourselves in, made ourselves snack, played with friends, did our homework, maybe started dinner. And um, that was normal then. And Gen X is damn proud of that. Um, So busy parents, hardworking, high achieving, high expectations. I was expected to get all A's. Um, I got punished when I didn't. Um, um, Not, you know, physical punishment, Mm -hmm. but like restrictions and things. Mm -hmm. And um, they never told me what I had to be. It wasn't like you have to be a doctor like daddy, or you have to be a mm-hmm. at HD like mom, or you don't have to, it was just, you know, you, you need to do something with the intellect that you have and, and education matters and excellence matters. So high expectations, um, lots of love. I feel, you know, my dad traveled a ton and whenever he was home, I was his baby. And I felt that unconditional, Oh, come here, baby kind of love. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 50 when I was born. So quite a bit older, almost like a grandfatherly figure. Whereas my mother had the work of raising me and had to deal with me and had to set the expectations and stuff. And, and I felt a whole lot of more judgment from her 
I'm not saying, I can't say she was judging me, right? But I perceived it as sure. judgment and never quite being good enough. And I'm still working that shit out. I mean, yeah. we live together now and that's, we're writing a book together, a mother-daughter memoir. Um, oh and my. I think this is where some of these dynamics will will yes. be elucidated on the page to try to help others who find themselves in a three-generational situation. We've learned a lot. We've been our own. I've been trying to be the therapist for the both of us. Cause as you know, my mom doesn't believe in therapy. So <laughs> I've been trying to bring everything I've learned to the task of these conversations I have with her about unpacking some of the old, old, old stuff and repattern. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful, messy process that will be. Yeah. And how, where, where was your, how old was your brother and older or younger than you? Older. Um, yep. um, so I have half siblings. Both of my parents had kids before they uh, were with each other. So this was my older, one of my older brothers, Stephen, who died uh, when he was 43, uh, very unexpectedly, quite yeah. tragically. And um, uh, yeah, so. Yeah. And, and two significant losses, like you said, within a you know, short time period too, that just, and it's interesting to, to hear you kind of say, like you just sort of barreled through that time period, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I barreled through. Um, it was just, I, I, I think I describe it as clamping blinders on my heart. Mm. Like my heart will not look out, you know, for, and like, we're just going to keep going. Yep. And of course, that can be a short-term, you know, strategy. I was trying to graduate from law school the month my brother was dying, yeah. and um, so it was. It's like you just can't go there. <laughs> it was a coping mechanism that mm -hmm. worked in the short term, but I definitely needed to mm -hmm. process it somewhere. That's some right, point. and I did. Yes, um, and and I love that as sort of again permission for people to know that you can come back to it. You don't, you don't have, there's no timeline, there's no formula, but just knowing that you can get there and being open to that. Right. Is the, is the sweet spot. Um, you talk about a, you know, turning point. Uh, I know it's specifically in this newest book um, turning point for knowing that you were, you know, required to adult being when you're moving truck caught on fire and, you know, like, right. Like that was a moment where you were yeah. sort of, okay, we are adults. We're doing this. Yeah. When you, when you think about turning points specific to um, mental health, what comes to mind upon reflection? Well, of course, what comes to mind are the things that I don't want to talk about, like some super private stuff where yeah. I can see, okay, I was going through some shit. I, yep. can I swear on your podcast. I'm yep. sorry. Yes. Okay. Going through some shit. <laughs> Cause that is a word. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I think I've already said it three times. During right. <laughs> and, um, um, just knowing, okay, I need help. Mm -hmm. I need, I need to talk this through with, without fear of judgment. Mm -hmm. I need to talk this through and work it out of my body and my psyche I had um, a corollary experience. Um, so, so I would say I've, I've sought therapy around very um, traumatic things. Mm -hmm. I have had an executive coach in my life who, again, as I described myself as somebody who, you know, I think is good in conversation in the listening space with humans and can help humans reflect and, and think and grow. My executive coach doesn't have a psychology degree, uh, but has a coaching um, expertise and certification and is magnificent mm -hmm. and worked with her in a work setting where I was able to develop a mindfulness practice with her teaching. Her name's Mary Ellen Myers. I think she'll be one of the five people I picture when I die, if there's mm -hmm. any truth to that. And she was pivotal because in her presence over a period of years, I was able to come to this very painful awareness of the fact that my triggers at work were embedded around feeling inadequate on the basis of my race, having learned over decades that people you know, thought less of me or people like me, people who look like me, the stereotypes, all of that were sort of embedded in an internalized oppression kind of way. Like I believed the stereotype. I was trying mm. not to be the stereotypical black person. And I finally come to this awareness where I'm through tears and snot and shame 
just all pouring out of me. I say, I was afraid as a child, I was ashamed of being black. Mm. I was afraid of black people. I was just trying to be what white people valued. And I unburdened myself of that. The, those three thoughts were probably the most, in my view, in my mind, the most shameful things I had ever mm. um, felt. And to say them to myself and to my coach was such, was me being so vulnerable. And I was so afraid, but by this point I was trusting her enough and I could tell it was like uh, a pot bubbling over. I had yeah. to take that lid off, Yeah, you know? And of course, you know, because this is your work in doing it, mm -hmm. I released it. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote about it in the book, Real American and discovered thousands of other people who would write me or come to see me at a book talk and say, I felt the same thing. Thank you for naming it. Yes. And many of, you know, the shame to say, like, I was ashamed of being the ancestry I am. And I quickly got to, isn't, I was made to feel ashamed. That's right. Right. People taught me that. That's right. You know? And so that I think was a massive turning point and I could have achieved it in therapy. I happened to achieve it because I was working with an executive coach in the yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. And I think so much of that is about, I mean, trust, trusting the process, trusting the person you're with and just being at that place where you're ready Yeah, to release and name it. And yeah. so uh, Let me and then, what mm -hmm. came right away was profound self-love. Mm. It was a rejection of that bully that was, it was just sort of this bully of internalized oppression. You are not good enough because you're black. You have to prove yourself. You are, you know, you're not enough. You have to constantly, you know, all of that. Just, I turned around and faced it in my mind and stared at it, named it, called it what it was. And it ran yeah. away. And in its place was the self-love that was just waiting for me to grab it. Right. Because I was going to ask, was there a lot of unlearning to do, but you're describing it as a sudden. It was sudden. Yeah. It was yeah. sudden. It was a relief. Good it was, God, it was yeah. the most massive. There's so many metaphors, the bully chasing me, the massive yep. weight pressing down on me. It was like, yeah, wow, I just sort of bounced, you know, like, okay. And here's how I know it. The very next day I walk onto my campus. I'm a dean at Stanford by now. I'm doing this work at Stanford. I've uh, been a student there. I'm now an administrator. I have known some colleagues for decades because they were there when I was a student and now they're still there. So I know faculty and staff and students who come from all walks of life, many black folk. And I walk onto campus to my office that next morning. And it feels odd to me um, that for some reason, all the black people are smiling at me. And I just took note of it. Like I'm seeing these smiles, I'm getting these smiles and I'm, you know, these are folks I know largely or folks I kind of know and, or some strangers. And I, the best way I can describe it is I was finally able to smile at myself as a black person. I could see myself in my blackness and find it ex not just acceptable, but marvelous. Mm. Therefore I could see other black people in their magnificence. And that's the smile we were exchanging. It was like they had gotten a memo saying, would mm -hmm. you smile at Julie today? But of course that's not what happened. Right. But like, she's right. there, everybody, everybody. Right. She's. Oh. It was emanating from me. I was giving off something. That's it. And there was, their smile was in return. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I just needed that to sit there for a minute. A year ago, plus after the murder of George Floyd, um, so many folks came out of the woodwork to, <laughs> to announce they had discovered this is a problem. <laughs> and it was non-Black people. And it was right, wonderful right. that they were there, but it was also so devastating that they were only just now just there. <laughs> and... I learned I have a hard time being in, in conversations where those revelations are made. And, and often they're made, the, the person will reveal not only that they just arrived at this understanding, but they'll announce that we've just, they'll say, oh, we've, we've all learned that there's racial violence. And, you know, you just want to say like, 
stop speaking for everybody, right? Because you don't mean we've all learned. You mean you have, and maybe the white folks you know, or the non-black. Anyway, so yeah. I've learned um, just how deeply valuable it is to find an affinity group, if you will, in college spaces, K through 12 spaces, we offer places for people to gather and be yeah. with folks who are like them, where they're not going to get that harmful stuff. Yes. You no, know? they're not going to get, did it, you know, why are you making such a big deal out of it? Are you sure it happened that way? Don't you want to give the other person the benefit of the doubt? It couldn't have been all bad. I mean, you're successful, like all of that. Just the re-traumatization so, that comes in yeah. that too. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how sexuality comes into all this as you talk about just the, the shame you carried for so long around race. Um, can you speak to yeah. any of that? Yeah. So I am physically, I'm a, I've just already told you that I'm identify as queer and bisexual and I'm in a heterosexual marriage mm -hmm. um, and an amazing marriage. Um, and um, it's not that we like lead separate lives and mm -hmm. anything like that. We are, we're very much together and a couple and, I'm a, I identify as butch. Um, so I've never, I've never, it's interesting when people started naming their pronouns, which I very much uh, respect and understand and appreciate mm -hmm. the necessity around not making assumptions. I had to ask myself, well, what are my pronouns? Well, mm -hmm. she, her, hers, but I had never really focused on my gender, my gender, in my life, in my awareness has not been a primary identity for me. Race has, um, my professional life is a part of my identity, like the, but gender, not so much. I've never, I went to the women's March in mm -hmm. Oakland uh, in 2017 and peeled off because so many white women were fist bumping police officers. Mm -hmm. I, could not reconcile these things. And so my femaleness has always been secondary or tertiary to other identities. I've never had a group of female friends in growing up. I moved around a lot, which is another reason I think I have compassion for the other. Cause I always was the new kid, mm -hmm. um, but never had that group of, of girlfriends quote unquote. I had friends. I had great friends, but mm -hmm. always individuals and never part of a group, never part of a group that hung out together every whatever, yeah. um, whether in high school, college, or in full-fledged adult life. And so um, I do a lot of thinking about why that is. I've always felt more comfortable with men. I know how to be in a group of men. Um, I drink scotch. I mm -hmm. smoke sometimes. I mean, I'm not a smoker, but I will smoke mm -hmm. a cigar. I will, you know, I, I, I like sports, like these are very stereotypical things, but <laughs> I, I know how to, I know how to make men pay attention to me. That's mm -hmm. how I'm going to frame it. Okay. I know that. And, um, mm -hmm. I know how to speak their language. And and when I say pay attention, I mean, yeah, in furtherance of my aims. Like I want you to know about my work. I want you to invite me to talk at your thing. I know how to like, yep. I know how to do that with men. And with women, I often feel lost around. I'm not sure what to talk about. I don't seem to be talking about the things they talk about. I'm not like I'm I'm a bit at sea, which I attribute to my not being femme, to my not being, you know, I, I just I, I I anyway. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But, it, but it's interesting that you say like that wasn't really a thing. Like you didn't necessarily feel that yeah. that put you in. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I found my way. I found, I found, uh, I do have great female friends. I have friends of all genders um, mm -hmm. across the spectrum. Um, yes. So my gender identity is um, something I've been leaning into and exploring more recently and mm -hmm. having the, the, the pronoun conversation really sharpen that lens for me. That's right. I am not a they, them, um, uh -huh. but I am also, I just found myself thinking, I don't really want to list my pronouns because I don't really identify with my, pro I don't really care about that, but I do list my pronouns typically when I give a talk because I know it's important for other people not to make assumptions. So I'm interested in the political and um, uh, respect That's right. uh, realm of it, even though my own pronouns are not something I like yeah. when I see Julie Lithcott Hames parenthesis, she, her, hers, close paren, I kind of feel like that's not me. 
but I don't know that there are other pronouns that are better. So I'll stick with those. Right. Right. But I, but I hear that. I mean, cause we, we love labels as humans. We love labels. We do. And there's a stereotype associated with she, her, hers that I think does not apply to me. So if I could just not let the stereotype yeah. be what I see, when I see that language, I might be able to see myself more clearly and be able to feel I can connect with people I think of as traditionally, stereotypically femme, female. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I can do that with greater ease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you most proud of? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Dan Mm. is my relationship with Dan. Dan is the best thing that has happened to me in a life that has offered amazing things. I am proud of the fact that he and I managed to stay in love across the challenging times. For example, I told you we met at 19 and 20. We married at 23 and 24. Our kids came when we were, I think, 30 and 31. So we had been together for quite some time before our children arrived. And it took us a while to conceive Sawyer. And um, and there's another set of issues there. I didn't go to the doctor. I'd been judged by a doctor about my weight when I was in college. So I hated going to the doctor. So I wasn't going to go to the doctor and, and deal with my infertility issues. Cause I didn't want it to be about my weight Oh Lord, and yeah. all of that. So there's, that's a separate thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, huh, yep. um, God, you still have a visceral reaction to that. Yeah. When we finally conceived, we went out to dinner at our celebration restaurant, MacArthur park in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And um, Dan we had been trying and trying for two and a half years. And, you know, so sex goes from being pleasure and amazing to like work, job, um, sadness, right? Because you're not conceiving. And so here we are, the stick turned blue, we're pregnant and I'm delighted. And Dan has this weird, like, he's not delighted. I can't figure it out because we have wanted this. Mm. And I finally confront him. I'm like, dude, what is the deal? We are, this is in and he just sat with it and um, we went out to dinner to celebrate and he gave me a little velvet jewelry box and inside was a diamond pendant necklace. And he said, I've realized what's going on for me. I'm worried that having kids is going to change what we have. We have an amazing relationship. Why would we do anything to harm it? Mm. You know, well, we want kids, but everyone says that having kids changes a marriage. So why are we doing that? Because what we have is amazing. And yet it's sort of this irreconcilable thing. And he said, I'm giving you this because I want you to have it. And I want to be able to see it when you wear it. I want us to remember what we had before we had kids. And this diamond came to resemble, to, um, to be the, the memory keeper of that. Mm. So here we are now on our 10th wedding anniversary, the summer of 2002, we have a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. We have just moved into a house that we co-own with my mother in which we still live, but that was a brand new situation. So Mm -hmm. mom is here. Kids are three and one. We're on our 10th anniversary. We decided to have a catered dinner in the backyard, of this brand new place Mm -hmm. we built. And we invited close friends. We had, I think, three couples, all of whom had kids, our kids age, Mm -hmm. same age and stage. My mother and one of my older brothers was there as well. And it's beautiful. We've splurged. We've hired a caterer. We have the little firefly lights. It's, you know, we're, um, I guess we're now, right? We're in our Mm mid-30s. And um, I stand up at the end of this long table. Dan and I were seated at the heads of the table. And I raise my glass of champagne. And I say to Dan, you know, there were times over this past year when I wasn't sure if we'd have much to celebrate when we got to this point. Hmm. And everybody looks down at their plate. (laughs) Awkward. It's awkward, but also they're relating. You could tell the people our age. Of course. 
they were almost going like, yes, yes, yes. Like, but they weren't necessarily saying it to each other. Right. So here I was, cause I'm the future memoirist. Like, let's just tell it. Here we are. Let's relate to each other. Let's be vulnerable and yes. discover we're not alone. So Dan stands at his end and raises his glass of sparkling cider. Cause he doesn't drink alcohol. And he says, I'll wait for you. If you wait for me. And that was the most amazing utterance I had ever heard because it made it about our age and stage and circumstance, not about there being anything wrong with us. And Juliet, I clutched that diamond necklace in my hands. Your, your listeners can't see me, but you can see I now wear a peace necklace, which is in every talk I give. Every, I never take it off. Mm-hmm. It's on a nice thick chain. I held the diamond. I wore the diamond necklace and never took it off until it would turn out we reached a point in our togetherness that was better than Mm. the period the diamond represented. Mm. And so I didn't need it anymore. And I took it off and it is in my jewelry box Mm -hmm. and I will keep it forever. And now I wear this peace necklace. Um, And so that's the thing I'm proudest of. We've done the work and we've done it in small ways. We have a sign in our bathroom framed sign that says, I love you because, and then a line underneath the statement and it's framed behind glass and wooden frame glass. And we have a dry erase marker where we write on the frame and he'll write something and put it on my side of the bathroom and I'll read it and appreciate it. And then like two days later or that same day or three weeks later, Mm -hmm. I'll write something and exchange it. There's no requirement about how frequently we exchange. And we have been doing that, noticing the small things about one another. I'm, I, I love you because you came home. I love you because you helped my mother with her computer. I love you because of the way you look in that t-shirt, you know, yeah, all yeah. of it, you know, from G rated to X rated, it's yeah. all there. And it's a way of saying, I notice you, you matter to me. It's a way to try to make sure we are coming back to each other. Even when life is chaotic and scary, problematic and busy and wonderful, but in external ways, like to be like, I see you. Yeah. And the last thing I need to say is I think Dan and I are both coming to realize we have plowed everything into Mm. our marriage and probably it has meant we haven't plowed nearly as much time and effort and attention and energy into friendships Mm. because there is only so much time. That's right. So I don't know. You know, is it possible to have an amazingly deeply connected primary partnership and Mm. amazingly close relationships with, you know, three or four other people and Mm. raising children and working full time Mm. and looking after your elderly mothers? You know, like, is that all possible? I think we're, you know, I, I will put it starkly and say, if either Dan or I were to die tomorrow, I think the, the, the surviving spouse would feel like, Oh my God, you know, am I close enough to others such that others will be there for me? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I feel like I want to be with those others. Like, do, do we have that? And we're both concerned about that and working at bringing friendship back now that our kids are older and we don't have to be in the weeds around them, you know, trying to be, actively cultivating or restoring rejuvenating mm-hmm. your friendships you know that just haven't gotten the time or attention they right. a friendship de- deserves Woo! You, you're gonna i'm gonna take a nap after this yeah i'll wait for you oh yeah just um it it doesn't get more just real than that, than, than whatever it takes. I mean, that is true love. And I totally appreciate the observation of kind of who are our other people. (laughs) But when you, when you have that deep of a connection and that's your person and you want to be with them, you enjoy spending time with them. So why would I go and do all these other, but I, and, and I think it's, it's awesome that in your, this season of life, you kind of have this ability to go and figure out what that looks like for both of you. 
and friendships are for different seasons and all that too. So like, you know, there, there's, there's opportunity there, of course. So with the pandemic, like in, in the work that you do, um, I know, again, as a parent of young kids our uh, I would say I've been saying it as our standards have really lowered <laughs> yet. What I really think it means is we're getting back to so much of what you preach. Yeah. Right. Really matters, right. Just some free play, forget That's all it. the activities, forget That's perfection it. and performance and just focus on relationship connection being able to take a breather, being able to just accept like, well, this is what will happen because it's a pandemic, you yes. know? Yeah. So are you seeing that and hearing that from a lot of, I am. of folks? I am. I'm also, it's funny, reporters are calling me and asking for my opinion. And, you know, as you know, I'm happy to talk. Um, <laughs> um, I am also hearing the opposite, which concerns me, which is in some communities that are so stress out of their minds about traditional measures of success, the grades and scores. They're uh, flipping out that their kids were struggling in the pandemic and parents and some parents have chosen to over parent in response. Like that's right. I need to do my kids homework to make sure they keep up their A. Yep. Or supplement so with all of the tutors. Or- the kids, if they can't earn the A themselves and you're band-aiding it over with your A effort is not going to help anybody. But I understand the fear and the ego need behind it, but it's just, you know, it's so misguided. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm seeing, I'm observing anecdotally both either one or the other. It's been, you know what, let's, let's focus on the new things that the pandemic is offering us. Everything is different. We're going to have different norms and standards and expectations and let's lean into that and really appreciate that. Or, you know, we've got to somehow squeeze academic enrichment and achievement out of this no matter what. Mm. And I really feel bad for folks who are in that second circumstance. Right. Are my kids going to get left behind and kind of that whole narrative? I mean, there are kids left behind and those are the kids who did not have internet access. That's it. It's a different. Okay. And, and that is a systemic failure. Right right of our america and of our cities and of our infrastructure not was, of families not of children and we have to reframe that as you didn't fail the systems failed you the it has been failing you and this highlighted it exactly yeah. Yeah. right so for folks at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum who everyone has their own device in their own room and all like okay stop right yes things have been hard yes it's been a period of suffering yes yes I would rather you focus on excavating the lessons learned in the pandemic. You know, like, let's be proud of what we did do. Let's reframe as, well, we couldn't do this, but look what we did do. You know, I had a, a mom tell me my kid used to get all A's and now she's getting B's and C's, but she is getting herself up every morning. And I hear her running down the hall to get into, you know, the laptop class. She's managing that herself. She's waking up to an alarm. She's, you know, making her own breakfast. She's like, cause the mom is like, I can't any longer. Cause now my work has shifted. And she's like, I'm proud to say my daughter has developed these other skills that might never have developed or not in anywhere near this time frame. You know, it's because of the pandemic, her kindergartner knows how to pay attention to a 20 minute timer. That's his break. He plays with Legos. He, you know, does whatever he wants. And then the kindergarten teacher is back. Her kindergartner knows how to do that. And she's stunned watching and, and thrilled. That's and great. So she's lighting in what they did do and, yes. and new things they achieved. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Anything you tell your younger parenting self, your younger parent self? Um. You'll never know which night is the last night you'll read to them. <laughs> it just, uh, it ends. Like there's a night you're out late. Everyone's like, you know what? We're not going to read to you tonight. It's so uh, late. Everyone understands. And then it ends. God, I can't. And, oh my gosh. All the things you want to wish away because they're tedious and tiresome. I'm just going to tell you from 21 years out, 19 years out, it's such a cliche and yes, you need your own time and your downtime, but try to appreciate I know. every single moment. I did not have a favorite age or stage. Mm-hmm. I have enjoyed every single age and stage my kids have gone through. And I think the lesson is really about try to be present. Try that's it. To be present. Yeah, that's it. It does fly. It's just crazy. They always say that to you, but damn, damn. I know, I know. Go to self-care activities. I get asked that too. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, 
I often don't have the quote unquote right answer uh, for people. It's not what people are looking for, but the truth mm-hmm. is. Yeah. I love puzzles. Yeah, that's what I, I want. Love, I want, yes. I love the New York Times crossword puzzle. My husband and I do it online. Yes. I compete because I come from a competitive family. And I had this epiphany that I need to win because when I win, I feel loved. That's what it was like for me growing up. Okay. We were competitive. We played games. We played cards. And to, when you won, you were validated. Mm-hmm. So when I had this epiphany, I said to Dan, I realize why I'm so competitive when I win, you know, I feel loved. And he's like, so when I beat you, which he more often than uh-huh. not, does, if I just tell you, I love you, is that, can we still do this? <laughs> will that work? And I said, yes. And that's what he does. So he'll kick my ass on the puzzle and be like, I love you. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And then and it's I- all good. Yeah. I so appreciate your openness and just walking us through a little bit of your journey. Thank you for spending the time, both you and everyone who joined us. Uh, yeah. yeah, I um, I, I have several takeaways, and just as a you know, the the repatterning again, just knowing that that's possible as humans. Thank God, right? Yeah. I mean, we're not otherwise we would all just feel guilty and full of regret and and anxiety and all the things. But like we can come back and ask for forgiveness. We can come back and yeah. repattern and with new awareness. Yeah. And I think it's apology. So I'll say I'm working on this. This has been a problem for me. I'm identifying it. I'm working on it. And that's a, apology. And I don't I, I think it's important to say, like, I'm not proud of how I've been. I know I was doing my best and I'm growing. And I'm working at being different and please know that I'm hard at work and please give me feedback. Yeah. You know, and no matter the age and stage of your kid, I mean, that's the thing too. And they are so gracious when I text them and say, you know what? I overstepped just then, you know, you were wanting to be validated in your feelings. And I started offering you help, which I'm such a fixer. I do that constantly with Mm. my daughter. I mean, not constantly, I'm getting better at not doing it, but if I just apologize, I'm so sorry. This is something I'm continually working on. I'm really sorry. I just get back the most loving, like, it's okay, mom. I love you. Thank you so much. You know? Yeah. 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 Because you're, you're owning it and you're saying, I I see you and I see your experience and I can tell how important that is to you. Right. Well, to all of us, we want to (laughs) matter. We want to be seen. And so to be able to see others gets us that in return too. Yeah. Appreciate your thoughtfulness. This has been a really delicious conversation. I appreciate you. So who you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep, I go to therapy. Again, huge thank you to our sponsor, Blooming Smiles Pediatric Dentistry. Just check out the Google reviews for Dr. Arpita Patel to see how great she is with kids. They truly offer a holistic approach to ensure for every patient the well-being of mind, body, and spirit.